think. All right. Excellent, excellent. We're gonna we're gonna start with uh, with Psalm thirty three this morning. It's a it's a psalm of of praise, and our our title for today's message is is Christ full of joy. So we're gonna start with Psalm thirty three. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to Him on the ten stringed lyre. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the word and the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looked down, and he sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord even as we put our hope in you. Father God, we come before you. We've got your word open in front of us. We're going to dive in together. and Please come close, Lord. We're seeking your face. We're seeking your wisdom. We're seeking your blessing. We're earnestly seeking you this morning. We, we lay the past week out before you, all the times where we missed the mark. and Lord, we... Um, we see the people around us. We see that they're hurting. We see that they're suffering. We see these, these trials and these turmoils, Lord, and we're, we're seeking to be your lampstand, that in this place that you would shine brightly. We're asking all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have a, a couple of quick announcements this morning. Um, yeah, Miss Brandy that that um, that cuts her hair. Um, she is having a yard sale. It's a benefit yard sale for a friend of hers who lost a leg in a motorcycle accident. Um, it's going to be August 29th and 30th, and it's at her house, which is uh, 3715 G Road. It's out in Palisade. But again, that's the 29th and 30th. And then um, on the 31st, the fifth Sunday, we're actually going to do an all worship service. So it'll be like ignited, but but here, which is going to be awesome. I know. I'm. I'm all excited for it. Um, our next food bank is September 11th and 12th um, 
So please be ready for that. Uh, we are going to be kicking back off uh, Bible studies. So the, the Sunday evening study will resume on the 6th. Um, we're going to be back out at the, the Berry Patch, and we're going to be doing uh, Daniel, it sounds like. So um, pretty excited for that. Um, and uh, it, yeah, so we've got that. Um, we are in need of some volunteers for the, for the worship team. If anybody is interested with, with Tessa and Derek going off to, to college, um, if there's anybody that's going, man, you know what I would love to do? I would love to learn how to run the slides or the live stream or um, the soundboard or any of that stuff, um, please see Mr. Nate and, and, uh, and jump right in there. Because it's actually kind of fun if you, if you like geeky stuff like that. But um, it was, it's funny, I was thinking when um, going through all this, we've, we've, with uh, the shutdown and, and going to the live stream and doing all of this, we've spent a lot of time talking about technology and, and focusing on technology. And one of the things that I, I want to make sure is that we don't get lost in the technology because the whole point, the whole purpose why we do you know, sound and instruments and lights and all of these things is that we want to reach as many people as we possibly can with the Word of God in a way that is meaningful to them. We don't want to give up the message you know, for, the, for the way that we're trying to deliver. We don't want to get lost in the show. Um, but we also want to make sure that we're not just locking ourselves in our, in our doors and, and, and shouting at, at the closet door and then wondering why it is that nobody knows about God. That, um, and, and actually, that's quite a, a bit of the theme for our, for our message for today. But um, just make sure that we, we keep on that track. So our, our message for today, and we're, we're going to continue in our theme on discipleship. Um, we're in Luke chapter 10, and we're verses 1 through 24. It says, After this... The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there... Your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet is a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will, be, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 72 returned to the, to the Lord in joy, and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned it and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one who uh, no one knows the Father who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you did see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Amen. So, we're still in this theme of discipleship and being a follower of Christ. But I wanted to take a moment and consider how radically different Luke is than, than from Matthew. Even though we're covering a lot of similar events in a lot of different ways, this is unique. The, send, the sending out of the 72 is not in Matthew, but Luke is emphasizing what it means to be a true follower of Christ. In comparison, Matthew in these same places would have grabbed a piece of Old Testament scripture focusing on fulfillment, fulfillment of prophecy, and how Jesus fulfilled those things as Messiah. Luke here is saying, hey, look at these examples of how to be a true follower of Christ. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 26. It says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, and this is important, whoever broadens that out to everyone, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever, everyone, who wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So the first part of that, discipleships, is talking about repentance. It's funny that the New Testament uses three Greek words to describe repentance. In one of them expresses the, the mental aspect of repentance. It involves a reversal of your thinking, a change of your mind. When sinners see themselves as God sees them, fallen and depraved and helpless to save themselves. Then there's another one that describes the emotional aspect of, res- of repentance, the regret and the sorrow that a person's change of mind um, about themselves produces. And then the last one, it refers to an act of will. That is, when we intentionally change the direction in our lives, turning from sin to God. We need all three of them. We need the intellect, the emotion, and then the will that causes us to actually change. So the first part of that is denying ourselves. And that is, be willing to do without. Be willing to be uncomfortable, be hot and cold and hungry and thirsty and dirty. And to put aside our, our desires, our lusts, and replace them with, with God's desires. The next part is, is to be humble. To kneel before God. See, that repentance and the reception of God's grace are not works that, that earn salvation. Those are free gifts that, that we receive. We're going to go to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 26, that, that talks quite a bit about this whole concept of humility and our sinful nature and repenting of those things. It says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. 
And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. That's the story of my life. Now if I, I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. It says, take up your cross. And we don't want to get this wrong. It does not mean to to bear the burdens of this world or uh, of your life. Those interpretations are kind of nice, they're kind of handy, but to the disciples at this time, it means one exact thing, and that is excruciating, humiliating death. And Jesus explains what he means by taking up your cross daily in the next verse. He says, do not value your life above Jesus. Do not value the things of this world above Jesus. And do not be ashamed of Jesus and his words. It's funny, you travel around quite a bit. You go to quite a few hotels. There's always the same sign at every single pool, at every single hotel. It says, no lifeguard on duty. Swim at your own risk. The Christian life is not a life of safety. There is no guarantee that we're not going to find trouble. In fact, it says the exact opposite. That signing up to be with Jesus, and this is what he's saying, is, hey man, swim at your own risk. I'm not guaranteeing you safety. Things are going to get bumpy. But, there has to be a point where we're willing to risk it. We're willing to go, you know what, it's worth it. Being unsafe, being uncomfortable, is worth it. We need to be so desperate for salvation that we're willing to take those risks. We're going to go to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. It's where Jesus talks about this. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's a strong word. Hate. Hating things of this world that are good things. Father and mother and wife and children and their own life. And again, that statement, take up your cross. Then he goes on. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish He's saying, right now, count the cost. Make sure this work of faith that has begun in you, that you can finish what you started as a follower of Christ. That you understand the risk that you're taking. That you understand where we're headed to. We're going to bracket off of that for a moment and go to Hebrews chapter 12. This is 
I don't know if I was doing this on the screen, like we would like take a big indent and then we're going to do it again and then we're going to have to, to come back out. Bunny trail number one, can we label it that? We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We've got to be able to endure to the end. Then it goes on. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, and this is, the, this is the takeaway right here, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. I'm a little bummed that nowhere in there did it say, go home and sit on the couch. It wasn't in there. I, I don't... I, I know. Everywhere in here, it talked about working and accepting discipline and, and struggle. There was nothing in there, no promises of safety. But it did say that God went before us onto the cross, that he took up those burdens, those sins that we talked about at the very end, that he took that with him. And he says that he'll discipline us as we go through our, our journey of faith, but that, that means he's with us, that he's forced, and that we are amazingly adopted as children into God's family, into the royal family. Wow. Let's go on to, to Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. It's talking about endurance, making sure that we've measured out our faith that we can last to the very end. It says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. It's been a long time since Jesus left us. We've got to keep our, our, our lamps burning. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they reply, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I, I do not know you. 
Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Those are some hard words, some hard things to hear. No promise of safety, promises of discipline, promises of hardship. But it says to us, hey man, if you're signing up, if you're writing your name on the line, mark it out right now. Take a measure, take stock. Make sure that you're ready to run this race to the very end. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. So know that it might be a long time. Know that hard times are coming. Forewarned is forearmed. Then it continues on in verses 31 through 35. It says, Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Notice when we talked about the different forms of repentance, we talked about applying your intellect, applying your emotions, we talked about applying your will to changing. That's exactly what we're talking about here. We need to wisely consider with our intellect what it means to oppose God. We won't win. I don't know if you guys have ever listened to Ben Shapiro, he has these Sunday conversations. He had a, one uh, back in May with uh, Orson Scott Card. He's the author of uh, Ender's Game. He's, he's actually a, he's, he's a Mormon guy, um, which uh, that's too bad for him. But um, he said something important, and that is that you can find a person's religion if you, if you ask them enough questions until they get mad. When you touch on something that, that they get defensive about, that they get angry about, you found an idol in their life, something that they, they're, they're really desperately clinging on to. And I think that's even true when you find someone who is, who is an atheist. It's amazing to me how angry atheists are for something that they really don't believe in. But it touches on something inside of them, an idol that they're unwilling to get rid of. They haven't sat down with their intellect and wisely considered what it means to oppose God. They haven't looked out over the ramparts of their lives and, and seen the opposition and what the fate is when they decide to go to war against God. And they continue on on their path unwisely. See, those idols, they evoke a, pan- a panic or an angry response in us. But see, God doesn't ever ask us to defend his honor or argue for his existence. He is self-evident. And he is the only thing that is self-righteous. See, if we have goodness or righteousness, it's like the moon. The the light isn't ours. It's just a reflection of of God's light casting on us. But the end of that is that we need to send our delegation now to make peace with God before it's too late. A lot of stark lessons here. A lot of black and white. Not a lot of in-between going to go to uh, to Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. It's the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a, a beggar named Lazarus who was covered with sores and longing to eat from what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away 
with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. I would underline this verse. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is as as stark and a hard a warning as we can find. Notice the man, there are no lies or or no denials. I was thinking about this, that our politicians right now are are masters of of hedging. They like to fudge the truth here and there. My my father-in-law, he says, you know, uh, what's the first step? Okay, lie. The second step is, is deny. The third step is blame someone else. And then the fourth step is to blame the other party. That's how you get away with it. And that we see that all the time. Here, this man, this rich man, he's out of it. He's out of the denials. The plain truth is laid there right before him. His punishment is just. There's no protesting that his punishment is unjust. He's just asking for a little bit of pity. One lived a life in the spoils of the world. One lived a life under the boot of the world. One received his reward on earth. The other one received his reward in heaven. Notice there was, there's no middle ground. That chasm, that divide, and even Abraham cannot cross it. Once it is done, that's it. It's interesting that the rich man's thoughts immediately turn to his family, the people that are still here on earth those who still have a chance to repent. Amazing, though, what Abraham says. He says, anyone who has Moses and the prophets has all they need to decide for salvation. Not only that, but all the miracles in the world will not convince someone who is not convinced by the word. If you ever have any doubts about the power of the word of God, the power of the Bible, the power of speaking it, It is right there. If you have the word, you have everything you need to decide for salvation. Isn't that absolutely incredible? You need nothing else. And all the miracles in the world are not going to change your mind. It's all right there. I have to wonder, who dares? Who would look out over their ramparts at the coming kingdom of the Lord and still oppose him? Who would do that? But people do it all the time. We go on to to verse 34. It says, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. See, we cannot be contaminated by the world. And then he concludes with, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Whenever we see that, 
We need to remember that it's, it's broadening that back out to make sure that that's a message for everyone. There are times when, when Jesus is only specifically speaking to the twelve or he's speaking to the people right in front of him. But whenever he says, whoever has ears, let them hear, he's broadening that out saying, this one's for everybody. So we need to take, take note of that. So back to the very beginning, our verse 10. Where uh, he sends out these 72, and he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town. I wanna, I've got a few slides we're going we're gonna to put up here. This is all about discipleship. So these are from, from Pew Research. Some of these are from 2018. Some of these are, are from 2019. But these are current states of the, of the church. Um, these are, they've done several surveys here. But you can see the top lines are people who are claiming to be Christian, but that number is dropping. It dropped from 78% down to 65%. And then the people who are saying that they're religiously unaffiliated is rising, gone from 17% to 26%. Most of these are, are 2008 to 2018 or, or 2009 to 2019. So over a 10-year period, um, th- these changes are, are showing. So uh, go on to the next slide, please. Okay, so you see this. These are people that identify as, as Protestant or Catholic, um, or nothing in particular. So you can see the people who are Protestant went from 51% down to 43%, Catholic from 24% down to 20%. It's the first time in history, by the way, that um, South America is identifying not as majority Catholic. Um, this, this, this year's poll was the first time um, that that has happened, where um, the, the majority of people in South America are not identifying as Catholic. But then you see the, the bottom one there. These are people who are nothing in particular, um, has gone from 12% to, to 17%. I think we have that last slide, please. Okay, so um, this is uh, church attendance, and we can see um, you know, we start out 54% regularly attended church, down to 45%, um, and then um, these are you know, people who uh, uh, a few times a year or less has gone from 45% to, to 54%. So the point of those is to say that there's a lot of folks out there that are unchurched, that are being unreached by us. That's a big opportunity. When we see that, we read this passage and it says, man, the, the harvest plentiful, but the workers are few. Oh, yeah, the data bears it out. There it is. These are, you know, not something that we gend up. These are, these are uh, you know, secular polls that are being done by a third-party firm. If there's any evidence that, that even evangelism is important, that we need to be outside of our four doors talking to people about Christ, here it is. It's happening across America. There's something that's, that's very interesting in all of this, too. Um, you know, people that are identifying as evangelicals, people that are identifying as Christian, their attendance is actually higher. So what's happened is that the people who are the casual followers, the people that only went because um, their parents went or because somebody else went, those people are following way. As, as Christianity becomes less popular, the people who are genuine followers are the ones who still come to church, and the people who are, just went because you know, of other social pressures, they no longer feel that pressure anymore, so they don't go. So in one sense, it's kind of a winnowing where, you know, you're seeing a lot more true believers inside the church and the folks that are, you know, maybe just paying lip service to it are not. I, I called them uh, Bill Maher Christians. If you guys ever um, watched the movie Religula, uh, Religulous by, by Bill Maher, at the very beginning of the movie, he's Jewish, um, and he sat down with his mom and he said, you know, mom, what, what, what do we believe? I grew up in the synagogue, but what do we believe? And she couldn't really articulate it either. 
They went to synagogue their, their entire lives, and of course he doesn't go now. But he had no idea. He had no idea what they believed, neither did his mom. They went simply because of social pressure. And we're seeing in our, in our nation now, those people are no longer feeling that social pressure, and, the, and they're not coming. But it speaks to this verse in saying that there is a great need in our nation to reach people. And with this, what you can say is really that when you're out on the street, one out of every two people that you see is unchurched or needs Jesus. I mean, you could just, you know, aim at it, and more than likely you'd hit somebody that needs the gospel. <laughs> That's a pretty good odds. You're not going to be speaking to a, an audience that doesn't need to hear from you if you're talking about Jesus out in public. That's pretty amazing. The other thing that it tells us, and this is, we, this is true throughout history, I've been reading a, a couple of books, and I, I would encourage you to do it, um, reading about the, the Puritans the, and the first congregational movements that, that brought people to America. It's amazing how like our current congregational churches, our non-denominational churches, the original Puritan churches were. Remember that they had all the turmoil with the, the kings of England and all that and going back and forth between the, the, the Church of England and then the Catholic Church and in there, they were, they were actually arresting, um, you know, pastors. Uh, you remember the, you know, when we talk about uh, the writing of, um, of uh, um, oh gosh, it's going to leave me. Anyway, um, but they were actually arresting pastors and putting them in jail for not either subscribing to the Church of England or to the Catholic Church. So these guys, they actually, you know, that's why they loaded up on boats and, and came to America was to get away from that. They were going, no, we, we, we follow the Bible. We, we follow Jesus. And it started those congregational movements that we, that we see now. But when we stick to the word of God, and this is always the concern as a, as a church, when we stick to the word of God, that it's going to be, you know, it's going to cause a bunch of people to leave, that they're going to be repulsed by the word of God, that it's going to be divisive, that it's going to speak against our culture, that people are going to go, when we read the word of God. And it's true that the word is divisive. It is a double-edged sword. But what's incredible is that people know the truth of the gospel when they hear it, and they turn to it. That's why when we're seeing it in, in our nation right now, especially in, um, and I'm going to pick on them a little bit, on our, on our Methodist and, and Presbyterian friends, they've kind of walked away from the gospel. They're not using the Bible as their foundation, and they're intentionally doing that. And we're seeing their numbers rapidly decline. Um, the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church are just getting decimated in their numbers, the only growth that we're seeing are in congregational churches like ours or like non-denominational churches that are just grabbing onto the Bible with both hands and proclaiming it as loudly as, as they possibly can. See, when we water down or we selectively choose the gospel in order to make it more attractive or not to offend people, people stay home in droves. They don't want to hear something that is not the truth. And we can see that empirically from the data. What that says to us is that we have tremendous opportunity right now as disciples of Christ to reach people. That we can walk out anywhere we want to. That the mission field is absolutely massive and it is open. And we should be encouraged by that. That really pretty much any place that you feel, man, I, I really would like to go here and proclaim the word of God, that's probably a really wonderful place to do it. It's not like a, you know, you're going to be talking to yourself. And the next part I'm going to say specifically to, to the guys, and that is that we need to lead our families to church. We are called to be heads of our household. We are called to lead our families. 
And the thing is that where we lead, people follow, good or bad. If we lead people to church, guess what? They go to church. If we don't, they don't. The next part is sent out. Notice that the disciples didn't stay where they were. And we need to go where the people are. Like I said, we're talking about the technology. Why do we have a digital presence? Because that's where people are. And if it's one thing we need to do more, is we need to do more outreach. I was thinking about this, that, and again, it's kind of incredible. Farmers don't sit in barns or in their houses and expect crops to walk in the door. They don't. Corn doesn't plant itself. It doesn't water itself. It doesn't weed itself. And it won't harvest itself. Maybe I need to build a machine for that. I don't know. But if we don't go out and work the fields, we cannot reasonably expect a harvest. And it's true that there are such things as wild corn, there's wild blueberries, but they are rare. And that's why, you know, we do see folks that that come to the church on their own, that, you know, they through reasoning or through their own study, that they come. But we need to come through this process. And that is, it's God's seed, it's God's church. It's God's sunshine. It's God's water. It's God's soil. And ultimately, it's God's harvest. But we are like the sunshine and the water and the soil. We are part of the mechanism that results in the harvest. No seed, no harvest. We have seed. We have the word. No light, no harvest. God is light. And that light is the life of all mankind. No water, no harvest. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. No soil, no harvest. If we were to go back to the the parable of the seed and the soil, it says each person is responsible for being soil that is receptive to the seed. If they're hardened like the path, shallow or choked out by the desires of the world, that's on the individual. No workers, no harvest. God will have a harvest. But the thing is, he may have a stern word or two for workers who he asked to go out into the fields and who instead stayed home. See, if you are a believer and you are content staying at home to do everything else but tend to the harvest, you have to ask the question, am I really a disciple? See, because if you hired someone to work for you and they didn't show up for work, or they did some of the work but not all of it, or... You know, they did the work until it got challenging or until the sun came out and it got hot or, you know, then they quit. How long would you put up with it? Would you you really be happy with them? Or would you be putting an ad out in the paper looking for a replacement? See, we can give ourselves, you guys have to do this at work, but you can give yourself a quarterly review of your pre-employment screening or... See, because if you were Jesus... Would you hire you? Would you promote you? Would you say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or would you say, away from me? I never knew you. (sighs) Tell you what, kind of stinks, doesn't it? These are some some hard and stark things in today's message. But the thing is that disciples, followers of Christ, they're obedient. They don't just listen to the word. They do what it says and put it into practice. John 14, verses 15 through 27 says this. It says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. 
the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to my Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Love leads to obedience, leads to a fruitful life. He says, I'm sending you out like, like lambs among wolves. And he says, say peace to this house. Promote that peace. Stay there eating and drinking. And when you enter a town and, they, and you are welcomed, heal the sick and then tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. I was noticing that the first thing in that sentence, the first sentence there, it wasn't, hang on a second. Or, or wait a minute. Or, on your marks, get ready. It wasn't even, like, a- after you finished, or after school, or after work, or, you know, once you are married and have two and a half kids and, and a dog, then go. Instead it says, go. With a big exclamation point. Emphasis not my own. kind of eliminates my questions of whether or not Jesus would like the 72 to hang around for a minute, maybe grab a snack, maybe run to the store, you know, maybe go shopping first. No, he just says, go. Go now. And then he gives the absolute worst sales pitch ever. Someone should give Jesus a lesson on how to do sales, because this is not how you do it. You don't tell people that they're going out like, you know, lambs to the slaughter. Generally speaking, you want to give somebody, you know, the benefits of of what it is that, that, you know, you're trying to get them to buy. Instead, he says, no, it's not going to be pretty. See, we were watching National Geographic yesterday, and on there we were watching Yellowstone, and we were watching Wolves Hunt. We learned some things about how wolves hunt. They're pack hunters. I don't know if you know that or not, but they are pack hunters. What they do is they, they sneak up to get close to the herd, and then what they try and do is they try to get their prey to panic and to stampede. Then they, they separate a slow or a sick or a weak one from the pack and then they take it down. And they, they take turns leading the chase until they latch on and, and drag down their prey. We should not be surprised when we are separated from the herd and attacked by a pack of wolves. It's guaranteed in our employment contract. We, we might want to file a complaint with the union rep. But it says, some people will receive you, some won't. Some will accept you, some won't. Some people are seeking, some aren't. That's a very important message for us to hear right now. 
that we are not the world's police, that we are not here to govern, govern other people's behavior. We cannot force people to accept Christ. And notice that the message to both groups of people is the same. The kingdom of heaven has come near. To one, the message is a message of love and peace. To the other, it is a message of judgment and separation. It's the same message. It just questions whether or not you have made peace with God or not. Whether you've looked out over your ramparts and decided to fight, or whether or not you've decided to send out your emissary and join. But the message and its events and what happens, it is not the messenger's fault. See, and Jesus gives some examples. He says, He has spent two years teaching and healing in this region. In these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they've, they've had Jesus and they've had the twelve living there. But the people were stubborn. They didn't repent. They didn't accept Christ. We have to ask ourselves, how, how can this be? How could you actually have Jesus living in your town and not get it? And if that's the case, then what chance do I have as a disciple? But it's the truth. And it's said in here, we, if you have the word, if they've heard from us, if they have that, that's all they need for salvation. All the miracles in the world, all the miracles that Jesus did in those towns, it wasn't enough to convince them. They were just stubborn. Think back to that rich man in Lazarus. And he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And philosophically, if we were to want to dive a little bit deeper into this, in my opinion, this is a strong statement for free will election versus pre-election and predestination. See, if, if people had no choice to choose or to reject salvation, this is pretty much all meaningless. Why send out the 12? Why send out the 72? Why the Great Commission at the end of Matthew? The plain theme throughout this past part of the New Testament is free will election. It's seed and soil. The part that you have control over is the soil. God provides the seed, the sun, the water, and the workers. We were given the soil by God and are, re- are responsible for making it ready to receive. Then we get to the next part, which is, do you really want a truly rewarding and fulfilling life? I think we all do. I think that's something that we all want for ourselves is a truly rewarding, truly fulfilled life. God says, go work my fields. He is faithful. He will provide a harvest. And what more could you ask for than a life of seeing people receive eternal salvation and then to go on to become fruitful in their faith? It's one of the best things that we do is when we get to do baptisms, when we get to see the kids go up to the the next grade, when we get to see folks living out their faith. It is by far the most rewarding thing that we do all week, do all month, do all year, do all life. And then he contrasts that with a stark warning. And he repeatedly uses very plain language. And, and, and I can't help but f- put Fruta in Grand Junction and Colorado in the place of these names. My heart aches at the thought that our town, our city, our state 
would be condemned to these fates that these places were? How could we not be moved to evangelism? How could we look out at the people, our neighbors, our friends, and know what they're facing and know what they're up against and stay silent? How could we? Um, there's a great video, um, if you get a chance. I've, I've talked about it 60 million times because I like it so much. But um, Penn Jillette, who's, you know, not, he's an atheist, but there's a point where a guy actually evangelized to him. He brought him a, a pocket New Testament and brought it to him and, and witnessed to him. And he said, you know, if you knew that a bus was coming for somebody, if you knew they were going to get hit by a truck, how long are you going to wait before you tell them that the truck is coming? How long? Or are you just going to watch as they get hit? Verse 16 says, Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now we're going we're gonna to beat this horse just a little bit because we haven't had enough starkness, right? It's the narrow door. It says, Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. It says, Then Jesus went through towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to, to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That's the question that we're asking right now. And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. It brings us to a natural question. It's in Luke chapter 18. Who then can be saved, Lord? These towns that you lived in, if these people who heard you speak, there's just these two doors, if there's this great chasm, who then can be saved? And this is the wonderful message. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter says something most important. He says, we have left all we had to follow you. And he says, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Eternal life. Amen. That's how priceless eternal salvation is. It's the, the most valuable thing. And it is free to all who earnestly seek it. That is, the message is to sell everything you have that is invested in this world to get out of this market before it kills you. Invest in eternal salvation today. Operators are standing by. <laughs> but all of this is only valuable in context of following Christ. You can deny yourself, give up everything, and be obedient to the wrong thing, to idols, to Satan, to other people, especially trying to seek their approval, to yourself, to your ambitions, to your vanity. But that fruitful life that we're looking for, 
it results in something absolutely incredible. See, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all of the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, this is the verse right here. This is absolutely incredible. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. You want to know what makes God happy? You want to know what what causes singing to erupt in heaven? What causes Jesus to smile and to be full of joy? Here it is. That one lost sheep. Father, we went out and we we proclaimed your name and, and people were changed. And Jesus was full of joy. If you did a a Google search or a, a search of your Bible software, and you put this in, if you said, Jesus, full of joy. It's three places where you would find it. All of them speak to this exact thing. It says, think about that. When he's, the lost sheep, it's one of the places. When he finds that lost sheep and he puts it over his shoulders, full of joy. The prodigal son, when he returns, full of joy. Here, when we come back to Jesus, having proclaimed his word, full of joy. That's where we get the well done, good and faithful servant. You found my last sheep. Thank you. Now we have to be careful here because We see these guys. We see that they were able to cast out demons and and do healings in Jesus' name. And the hard part is, you know, if we were cessationists, if we were people that believe that these miracles ended with these folks, that they ended with this line of preachers, and and then then that could be. But other folks would argue that this verse is reason to believe that all disciples should be able to cast out demons and heal. And when we take that view... And I caution you against this because it it can lead to a prosperity gospel kind of point of view that when we are receiving blessings, that when we give God the glory and that everything is good, that it's all all in the up and up. But what happens when we can't heal or we can't cast out a demon? When we pray and pray and still struggle with illness and mental illness and broken relationships, when we beg God on our knees hour after hour for cancer to leave a loved one, and they die anyway. When we lay hands on and pray over folks here in the church and and they aren't miraculously cured, does that mean that we aren't true disciples? See, those kinds of expectations can crush people's faith and they're not accurate. They're not biblical. See, those kinds of things can lead to that judgment and rejection by churches that, that they crush people. And there, there are a couple of major reasons why, why people reject the church. Not necessarily Jesus, but they reject the church and his followers. See, we are sent out like sheep among wolves. Sheep don't always fare very well among wolves. We may be accepted, we may be rejected. Success and safety are not guaranteed. But we pray anyway. 
We pray continuously, but we humble ourselves before God who may or may not do. And then when we see the kingdom of heaven at work, when we see the kingdom grow, when people are healed, when evil does flee, what do we do? We remember our eternal destiny. Remember where our hearts and where our treasure are. They're with Jesus. It's full of joy through the Holy Spirit. We're going to we're going to close with, uh, with John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. It says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy. There it is, the full measure of my joy within them. He wants us to have the full measure of his joy. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. This is Jesus speaking to God. He's praying. He says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. See, when one of his lost is returned to him, he is full of joy. (laughs) We should be too. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We, uh, we're headed out of here. We're going to go have this week. And Lord, please give us courage, give us strength, give us provision that we could reach those that are in need, those that are suffering, those that need you, that we would boldly proclaim your word this week to the people, to your people, that Lord, that we would be lampstands that, that shine brightly with your light. Lord, we're seeking your, your face and your guidance. We're seeking your will. We're seeking your courage. We're seeking your healing. Lord, we um, have so many worries that we cast upon you. We've got Walt healing up from surgery and people who are are still sick and suffering and accidents and injuries and cancer and Lord so many people and we know that you are the the healer and the redeemer we think about our, our, our kids going out to school and have so many things that little things that worry us and then big things too, Lord. And we, we lay them at your feet. We trust that when we take the next step that you are right there beside us, Lord. That as we go forward into this week that you'll be right there with us, Lord. We just ask that, please. That help keep us on your path. Please guide our leaders and please guide our country. Please lead us back to you. Lord, we, um, we lay our lives before you. We know that there are times this last week that we've missed the mark. We're just seeking your forgiveness and grace one more time, Father. We confess those things before you and we just ask for the strength to, to not go back to those paths. 
that those things that separate us from you, that we would step over those hurdles and not go back. We also seek, Lord, to, uh, to reach just one person this week that, uh, that needs you. Give us the courage and the strength and the resources to do that, Father. This week, today, for you, that we would go as you have asked us to. And we ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, yes. So please make a, a pass through the, the orange room. Um, there's a lot of stuff that will, will not make it to the next food bank. So please, please, please take that with you so that we don't have to throw it away. <laughs> it stinks.